Hey everybody, welcome back to Up The Vibe and today I'm joined by Rob Nayland who is both a sculptor for the last 40 years and also a researcher who has published papers with the, with the previous guest Manu Seisfede and also with the likes of Robert Schock and Robert Baval looking closely at the Sphinx in Egypt. How are you today Rob? Excellent, excellent. Greetings Joe and uh, greetings to all of your listeners around the world and especially to our friends in the UK. Uh, from snowy Breckenridge, Colorado, lovely ski town here in the Colorado Rockies. And I know that it is a favorite of many, many visitors from the UK, uh, many of whom uh, perhaps are familiar with the International Snow Sculpting Championships that occurs each year mm -hmm. here in Breckenridge. Um, I'm a part of that story, and yes. that's a part of this story that we're going to be looking into today. Yeah, of course. Um, so let's start, actually, um, before we go into the Sphinx, about your your history in sculpting, how you got into it, and um, and what, what you've achieved in that area and mastered it, mastery. <laughs> well, it's, it's a funny story, but um, I have been, for the last 40 years, um, competing internationally and in snow sculpting as a snow sculpture artist. Mm -hmm. And I've been captain of the United States team and have traveled all over the world for the last 40 years and uh, have won the gold medal on three continents during that period of time. And this bizarre activity involves the subtractive sculpture of monumental pieces of monumental size using only hand tools uh, in competition. So it's in a very, very compressed time frame. Literally, a competition lasts about four days, and we'll take a block of snow, a block, if you will, that is a very dense and brittle medium, and we will render a fabulous sculpture uh, in a matter of four days. And so it is, it is that sculpturing ability, if you will, that sort of led me on my strange journey with Mehit, a.k.a. the Great Sphinx mm -hmm. of Giza. Yeah. So you've been uh, so, sculpting for 40 years. And how did you start in that? And, and is it... Um... Was it, as, was it a passion that came from building snowmen and playing around or was there? Yes, it yes, <laughs> it is. Um, it, it was a passion that came from that. And, um, you know, I have a background in advertising and design. Mm -hmm. And so that uh, sort of led me on this path. And the neat thing about uh, snow art is that it gives the artist, the sculpture, if you will, um, it gives them the opportunity to actually do their own ideas rent large. You know, normally you don't get the commission to do a giant monumental sized snow sculpture until you're one of the very famous sculptures in the world, you know, and a, and a city commissions you or a corporation or something like that. The ability to do your own ideas and to execute them on the public forum, on the public stage, if you will, in snow is really a wondrous thing about this particular art form. And, and I have to tell you that there is a exquisite irony in the fact of a practitioner of what is the most fleeting form of sculpture should be drawn to researching the most ancient and enduring and colossal sculpture on the planet, that being the Great Sphinx of Giza. Yeah, so um, you were... Uh... You've had a history with that. How did you get involved with discovering more about the Sphinx? Well, you know, 
coming to this from the perspective of a sculptor, and again, I, I would I would stress, I'm a sculptor. I am not a geologist. I'm not an Egyptologist. I'm not an archaeologist. I'm a sculptor. And to me, I am keenly aware of the power and purpose of symbols as vehicles for knowledge and understanding. So as an avid student of ancient civilizations, I was drawn to the work of Robert Schock. And 30 years ago, John Anthony West and Robert Schock asserted that the Great Sphinx of Giza uh, was actually far older than we are told, and that the head had been recarved in dynastic times. Well, since 2017, we have known that this recarved head had originally been a lioness, and that lioness, we have ascertained, was the ancient dynastic goddess Mehit, who was the patron of the scribes and the priesthood and the archivists in dynastic Egypt. Since 2019, uh, we've known that that head reached its current uh, appearance when it was recarved by Khafre or someone of his time frame. About 2500 BC, 2550 BC is when it was carved out. So I took all of this and, and came to the table with the notion that, okay, <clears throat> if John Anthony West is correct, and if Robert Schock and Robert Bouval and Manu Sefzadeh are correct, that the Sphinx is older, and the reason that it looks like an Egyptian is because the head was recarved down from that of a lioness. If all of those things are true, then, as a sculptor, that's how I approach this question. If those, all of those assertions are true, then it means that the head that we see today on the Great Sphinx must have been able to have been derived from the stone head of a lioness on the former sculpture, mm -hmm. period. Because in stone, you can't add stuff back on, mm -hmm. right? So okay. anything that has been seen throughout the history of the Great Sphinx, which just as a side note, the head that we see today is not the way the Sphinx has looked forever. It's not as the way the Sphinx has even looked during the time of its current head. It also had other elements that were present during history that are no longer present, i.e., you know, the royal headdress had the breast lepets that came down the side here. It had the royal divine beard off mm -hmm. the chin. It had the nemus tail back behind the side of the headdress there. And of course, as we might also note, it also had a nose. Okay, mm -hmm. so the point being that all of these elements had to be able to be arrived at by sculpting a from sculpting a lioness head. That's where I came to this question in the first place. And so I set about to perform a sculpture of the Great Sphinx and to make it as detailed as possible. You see her actually yeah. sitting right over my shoulder mm -hmm. there. Yeah. And um, that was a very interesting journey for me, Joe. And I have to say that it was a, a little bit odd and maybe even a little bit magical in the process of doing the sculpture. And let me share with you just the tiniest little anecdote. <clears throat> I was doing this sculpture of the Sphinx. 
you know, first, of course, I did the body, all right? And then I worked on doing the head of the way the head looks now. And then I sculpted a lioness head, right? And so the idea was gonna be put the lioness head on the body, hollow out the lioness head and see if in fact all of the things could fit together, kind of like making a, uh, a chocolate, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so I'm working on this sculpture. It's late at night. I've got the head, I've got the body, I've got the lioness head and so forth. And I am finding, looking with the sculptor's hands, okay, uh, because as a sculptor, I think it's important that one is able to see with your hands as well as with your eyes, right? So I'm looking back and forth to see where this okay. head should go, and, where the head just, goes. Uh, can I just ask quickly, what, what material yeah. were you using for this sculpture, was it? Well, this is a plastiline so, sculptor's clay. Okay. okay. Uh, and it's a, it's a beautiful medium for working in because you can, you, know, you can get it soft by warming it up and working it but then it sort of hardens up again when you you know when you leave it be and so it makes it, it makes really that's really the medium of choice for uh, okay. for for sculpting mm -hmm. so i'm seeing where this head is to be located and again my hands are really the ones showing me where the proportional proper spot is for this head to land on the body because remember if the head is extended too far forward or too far upright or whatever, there won't be enough volume inside the head mm -hmm. so that the current head would actually fit inside that. So that was the issue that I was dealing with. So I'm finding this location for the head. Finally, the spot appears. My hands determine where the head should actually be located. All right. Mm -hmm. And so that's fine plop the head down there, fix it into place. And then I look over at, on my iPad, where I have all these photos of the Sphinx that I've been studying, making this sculpture and whatnot. And there's this one aerial shot, I think that I sent it along to you. There's this mm -hmm. one aerial shot that was taken in 2015. It's kind Is of a it rare- Is worth bringing that up? Uh, sure, absolutely. Um, it's an overhead shot late, late, late in the day when the sun is just about to go down. So the light is very, very long on the back of the sphinx. Lo and behold, I look over at that photograph and there is a mark. There is a hump that is on the back of the sphinx. That's kind of, that's not quite, there we go. That's the shot. Yeah. The hump that is right there on the back of the sphinx behind the sphinx's head was in exactly the shape and exactly the position of where I had just located the lioness neck on the back of the sphinx. And I, and I have to tell you, I saw that and the hair stood up on the back of my neck all mm. the way down my arms, like what the heck just happened? Right, okay. Right there is a mark showing exactly where that lioness neck would have been had the head been recarved. Okay, fascinating. And so... And so, you know, I thought, well, okay, well, obviously this is common knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So I get up the next day and I do a little research and look around and so forth on online. And, and not only is it not common knowledge, it has not actually ever been noted before. And I say that it has not been noted. Yes, there are um, topographic surveys of the Sphinx that accurately show all the layers of which that is one. By the way, it's labeled bed 7A by Mark Lehner in his uh, seminal work, um, Archaeology of an Image. Um, but 
I got a hold of Manu. I sent him an email and said, hey, you know, I know this is nothing, but, you know, I was doing this piece of, of, of the Sphinx before we went to Egypt to meet up with Robert Schock and then Safe Today and, and the entire group that we went with. And I saw this mark right on the back of the Sphinx, like right where the stinking head goes. What's up with that? And he wrote me back immediately and he said, oh, my gosh, I think you're on to something. And that really, really is what started my journey with mm -hmm. Mayheat, the Sphinx, yeah. is doing that clay sculpture, seeing that there was actually a mark in reality where I had predicted sculpturally where I had predicted one would be. Yeah, That's really what kind of started that journey. And, and I so think this is the image behind. Is this the image um, of what's behind you? Yes, that yeah. is. That's the image right yeah. behind me. And you can kind of see. You can see exactly what you're saying in terms of sculpting. The you've got the head on one side, and then you've got the what what we see today it, it embedded inside. But there's more exactly. to it than just seeing the two sort of side by side. It's the the physics side as well that you're trying to explain. The physics that, side of that, yeah. and and that's yeah. why I think that the the sculptural rendition of this was such a uh, meaningful contribution to this very, very complicated and broad conversation mm -hmm. because you can, you can really see that. And again, my point as a sculptor was remains the same. And that is if all of those assertions are true, then it had to be able to have been derived at sculpturally. And I believe that I demonstrated that that is what was really the topic uh, and subject of the first paper that I published in Archaeological Discovery Journal in 2020 uh, called Mayheat's Stump. And that is referring to the remnant that is still visible to this day on the back of the Great Sphinx that arguably may have contained the seeds of where a recarved lioness head would have fallen. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, I mean, it's very exciting to have... Um, uh, you know, to have been able to be a part of this whole conversation like that. Sure. Now, it, interestingly enough, Joe, um, I have seen uh, a couple of comments and comments online and YouTube videos and things like that over, over the over the last couple of years where where people have said, oh, well, that's just a silly lump of clay. You know, that, that proves nothing. Well, it's, it's interesting, and perhaps it's a silly lump of clay, but I must tell you that that silly lump of clay is a pebble that I tossed into the still pool of Egyptology, and the ripples of that are spreading far and wide. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That image that you just put up there has been viewed almost 10 million times online <clears throat> over various platforms. The Joe Rogan Show with Graham Hancock on numerous... Uh, podcasts and YouTube videos that people have made and on yeah. Quora and it's been cited in several books and so forth. So silly lump of clay as it may be, um, that lump of that, that lump of clay has got some legs, let me tell you. Yeah. And and that, it's not just this, it's it's many aspects though about the whole story of of Egypt that's making waves and really telling us there's more more to this story than uh, than we're told. So um, maybe we can turn to a little bit about the the bearded lady, the the story there, and um, and also about the pyramid texts. You bet. Well, so let's let's frame the question here first. I I think it's important to ask. Okay, so what? Uh, what difference does it make if the head was recarved, and maybe the sphinx is older than we're told, and so forth? What difference does that make? 
you know, um, first of all, the uninitiated look at the Sphinx and say, well, if it's so much older, how come it looks like an Egyptian for starters? Okay. And the reason it looks like an Egyptian is because the head was recarved in, let us say, 2550 BC, if you will. Um, this is probably the watershed, no pun intended, between Egyptology and the alternate history view of how things happened is was the sphinx head recarved or not the great sphinx of giza is probably the most enduring and perplexing mystery of ancient civilization and one has to ask how is it possible that the most colossal and grandest statue on the entire planet is absolutely and utterly without mention in the historical record for over a thousand years after it was supposedly created. Okay. What's up with that? How can mm -hmm. that, how can that be? Um, so our work that I've done with Mahid and that I've done in collaboration with Manu Saves the Day has been in the service of trying to build a bridge between the convention of Egyptology and the worldview of the alternate historians and seeking to bring balance and to bring those two together because there's been a real logjam and a real schism between those two worldviews really for the last 30 years since John Anthony West first asserted that the Sphinx is far older than we know by maybe even thousands of years and that it looks like it does because it was recarved. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the premise, I think, that it's important to look at this at this whole conversation. In. And in my opinion, the reason that the question of was the Sphinx recarved at a different time, was its head carved in modern dynastic time? I say modern being not ancient, ancient. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think the reason that that question is important, Joe, is because the Sphinx represents something that it is footprints that lead backwards in time and not forwards in time the way that we have always been told and that the erasure of Mayheat, the patron goddess of the archivists and the keepers of the record if you will her erasure is a very revealing part of our all of our forgotten history yeah. So that's kind of the thrust of where I come to this. And where this goes to the bearded lady is because it is our attempt to provide a hieroglyphic textual reference to actually there is a place where the story of the Great Sphinx and her recarving is told. And it is told in the pyramid texts. Now, for your viewers who may or may not be aware, the pyramid texts are in the tomb of King Unas, who is a fourth dynasty king. And he is, um, his pyramid is probably the, the last and the smallest of the royal pyramid period of the pyramid builders. Mm -hmm. It's located in Saqqara. And unlike perhaps some of the other pyramids, his pyramid actually is a tomb. 
And his tomb is some 97 feet directly beneath his ruined pyramid in the bedrock. And in his tomb, which basically is two pretty good size rooms, the sarcophagus chamber and the antechamber, and then there's an entryway and the, and the little sort of three-pronged tunnel thing that goes off to the east. Um, in his tomb is where the pyramid texts are. And this is important because the pyramid texts, there's like 26,000 of them, literally from floor to ceiling in these two rooms. I mean, it is astonishing to go in there to see this in person. And, and are but, they still there? Or are they oh my moved? God, they are in a perfect state of preservation because okay. they haven't been exposed to sun, to water, to wind, sand, erosion, all of those other kinds of things. Uh, it was discovered in like 1881, 1882 by Maspero, who discovered the pyramid texts. Um, but the point being that the pyramid texts are the oldest known religious writings from ancient Egypt. What does that mean? That means that this is the very first time that all of the ancient rituals and the oral traditions and the incantations and the spells to guide the king's spirit to the afterlife, this is the first time in the tomb of Unas that these were actually committed to stone. So I think that is, that's important in terms of contextualizing the pyramid text. Now, mind you, these, uh, this happened about 150 years after Khafre, okay, who, let us say, allegedly recarved the head of the Sphinx or carved the whole thing or whatever. So 150 years later is when Unas died and when his um, burial chamber was provided and so forth. And the pyramid texts were um, installed and in inscribed in his tomb. So in the pyramid texts, we find that carefully interwoven into the narrative of the pyramid text, which ostensibly are instructions, spells, rituals, and invocations to train and to guide the spirit of the king into the afterlife, okay? Mm -hmm. That is the official meaning, purpose, and intent of the pyramid text. However, carefully woven in between the lines of that narrative is this story of Nahit, the lioness, mm -hmm. the great sphinx, and the incredible sacrilege and defilement and desecration of this venerated ancient monument that occurred under Khafre when he stuck his face on this ancient venerated monument. Okay. So that's that was kind of the launch pad, if you will, for our investigation when Manu and I went back in 2022. Mm -hmm. And we spent three weeks in and out of that tomb cataloging, photographing, analyzing, compiling the threads of this story that runs through the narrative of the pyramid texts. Okay. So so, so the um so from your perspective, uh, the lioness head was uh, recarved at the time of Khafre as a form of would you say is it sort of punishment or try to banish the the knowledge no of, no not no no not punishment not punishment at all this was a um this was a rebranding in the most historical and horrendous mm -hmm. of perspective if you will 
And in fact, I would go so far, Joe, as to say that this was not just a symbolic rebranding. It was actually a theological seismic event. Let me explain. Um, Mehit, as the guardian of the scribes, the priesthood, the archivists, and who was closely associated with the moon religion or the moon cult. So you've got female lioness moon cult religion okay that had been the religion for who knows how long all of a sudden a king comes along and says hey i am determining i'm having my face carved into this ancient monument with may i say the divine braided royal beard adorning my face um and i am henceforth signaling that the moon cult is no more and that I am associating the Great Sphinx, this monument, with the ideology of kingship and the sun and the sun god Ra going forward. And so this was basically a state-ordained change of a religious paradigm that had been in place for countless hundreds of years, if not longer, okay? So... It makes me think so we, that um, maybe the, the this idea was borrowed by the Romans when they decided the Council of Nicaea to to change religion and from the polytheistic to the monotheistic. It seems like a a similar pre event to that, and a it seems this thing's been going on for point, a while. Joe. Yeah, excellent point. Yeah. Those those are two great examples of the eye of the needle that history passes through and is mm-hmm. changed forever. And you mm-hmm. and you're exactly right to point out that the Council of Nicaea. Um, so this change that happened, this rebranding of Mahit, the lioness, imagine for a moment, if you will, that Mao Zedong in China, okay, or Kim Jong-un in North Korea these days, imagine if he went out and took some ancient, ancient monument uh, that had been revered for centuries by his people and, and his culture, carved his face into it and said, yo, people, henceforth, I am the living God right here, right now, today. Not in the afterlife, not later on down the road in history, but I am the living God right now. Mm-hmm. So imagine if that had happened in either one of those environments. Imagine what would happen if you were to say, oh, hey, that's not really Kim Jong-un. That's really the ancient statue of such and such that we believed in forever and ever and was our religious icon. Basically, what would happen is off with your head and off with the head of all of your family and all of your friends and everybody that you know. Okay, so the point being that any references to the prior iteration of the statue would have delegitimized the claims of kingship and divine right, if you will, of the king or the ruler or whatever. And I think that we see the workings of that same kind of situation happening here. And again, I have mentioned before, and I firmly believe that the recarving of the Sphinx is not just a archaeological event. It's not just a geological event or an erosion event or a quarrying event or something like that. It is rarely examined as an iconographic event. 
And that's the horse that I rode in on as a sculptor. Let's talk about the change of symbols and what they mean to the culture and the civilization. And what it ultimately leads to, Joe, is that in order to validate this change from female lioness, moon cult religion to king image, sun god, sun religion, and so forth, in order to validate that, she was extinguished. Her moon cult was extinguished, and Mahit the lioness was expunged from the historical record. And that's one of the contributing factors to why we see no references to the Sphinx for over a thousand years. And by contrast, I have to say that the, the iconography or the, the symbolism, if you will, of the lioness Mahit, who was associated with the moon cult and associated with the Sphinx for all the way back to at least the first dynasty in Egypt, we see that. I got a little, um, I'm going to hold this up for you here, just uh, up to the camera. There. Oh, yeah. This is an example of a first dynasty uh, ceiling that was in uh, that was in one of the um, graves, if you will, one of the tombs, where the lioness symbol with the bent rod coming out of her back is clearly displayed right next to symbols of, of like a shrine and so forth and so on. This iconography of Mahit the Sphinx goes all the way back through at least the first dynasty. Okay. And it ends, Can you bring that back up again? Sorry, I got a it, quick question. It ends with Khafre. Okay. okay. That is the last time that we see the use of the symbol of Mahit. Wait, wait, is Khafre on that? No, 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 God, this is this is 500 years okay. or more before okay, Khafre. See. That's and, the whole point. And how come there seems to be two heads and two paws in terms well, of the, they, the shape? Uh, they, the actual the actual lioness is, is there yeah. and it's there. And then uh, this one right here, Acre, is the two-headed lion, if you will, that is also an important symbol that is in the pyramid text. And basically, he's the guardian between the netherworld and the world of the living, if you will, mm -hmm. as is ultimately one of the functions of the Sphinx is that she is the guardian between the afterlife and the present day life. And in fact, one of the fact, one of the elements of the paper that Manu and I wrote talking about the story of the Sphinx in the pyramid text is that the actual architecture of the tomb of Unas is a simulation of the Sphinx's body through which the king must traverse on his journey to the afterlife. So, I mean, the symbolism is all very, very carefully encoded and very carefully wrapped around in through the entire um, uh, pyramid text in the tomb of Unas. One of the aspects that, um, in addition to wordplay, metaphor, simile, and uh, homophony, and all the kinds of things that the, um, that the scribes used in the hieroglyphics, is also text placement, i.e. the positional location of specific texts in relation to other specific texts is a very important uh, tool for uh, intent and meaning. So I, and again, not to get too far into the ditch on that, just right off the bat, but these are some of the things that became apparent to us when we did this detailed analysis of the pyramid text in the tomb of Unas in February, actually just about a year ago. 
Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And uh, what's the significance around the bearded lady and the beard itself? And you you mentioned it earlier, but was the I think I heard a story. Um, I think it was from you about the put the a woman wearing a beard was a very um, <laughs> was against the, the idea of divinity and um, that the the beliefs at the time. Is that right? Well, yes and no. I mean, the, you, there were certainly female pharaohs throughout the history mm-hmm. of um, ancient Egypt and. And for a lot of that time, the beard was actually something that was added, that was worn, if you will. It was part of the ceremonial mm-hmm. dress of the king and that kind of thing. However, there is a big distinction when you look back through the ancient reliefs on tombs, the ancient statues that, that you see and, uh, and so forth, that there's different kinds of beards that are depicted, okay? Normally... A living king wore a short, square beard, okay? And the curved, almost like the scorpion tail, the curved Mm. braided beard was a symbol that was reserved exclusively, underlined exclusively, for gods and for ascended dead kings. In other words, kings that had ascended to attain their godlike status. Mm-hmm. It was ex- the divine royal braided beard was exclusively a symbol of divinity, as distinct from the short beards that um, female pharaohs and male pharaohs were always showing. A living king had the short square beard, deceased ascended king had the curved braided divine royal beard. Okay, yeah. so. That's where we get into the importance of symbols and iconography. Yeah. Imagine, if you will, that when Khafre had his sculptors carve his face into this ancient lioness monument. Okay. That's a that's a desecration for one. Okay. But with his face adorned as a living king with the divine braided royal beard, that was him proclaiming in the most important and monumental symbol possible, I am the living God. I am not the God in the afterlife. Later on, I'm the living God right here and right now. That's what I mean when I said that this symbol change from lioness to king's face was not just a stylistic nuance with this beard, it was actually a theological seismic event. And you can imagine that the, the group that was probably the most impacted also had to be the most careful about their expression of mm-hmm. protest and uproar, mm-hmm. that being the priesthood, the scribes, and the archivist class. Again, archivist being the keeper of the records, right? Because this was a this was a sacrilege and a defilement, literally of historic proportions. But you don't think any one of them were going to raise their hand and say, "Oh, by the way, this is a giant sacrilege, and we're throwing we're throwing a flag on this." Uh, not so much. I know. <laughs> and sure. yeah. and so and so we see the tale of this is camouflaged and woven into the pyramid text again the first time that the ancient beliefs were inscribed in stone in a royal funerary capacity 
Um, the story is there of the outrage expressed, the protest expressed, if you will, and through sarcasm and through metaphor and through all sorts of different uh, images that are likened onto the beard and that refer sarcastically to the beard and to the evil deed that has been done. I mean, this is all around through the pyramid text, but beneath the surface, okay? And that's the story that we tell in The Bearded Lady. And we call it The Bearded Lady. I um, arm wrestled with Manu about the title of that piece. Um, but I felt it was really important to put that concept right up front, Joe. And that is that the real event that happened here is that the king bearded the lioness. And he stuck his own face and said, I'm a god, you're not a god, you're history. In fact, you're not even history. You just became she who is not mentioned. Mm -hmm. I'm the god going from here on forward. And the outrage and the protest of the priesthood, scribal class, and the archivists is what is demonstrated throughout the pyramid text and comprises the story of the bearded lady. And, and frankly, I think that this may be one of the only examples known to date um, in, of references and talking about the actual great Sphinx of Giza and Mahit the lioness, who was its predecessor. Sure. Um, turning a bit more to uh, the history before um, all this happened, well, what's your um, views, your take on, I guess, the, the growing thoughts and i think graham hancock someone who's been bringing this forward about ancient civilizations that lived uh 11, years ago and the the talk of the younger dryas event that you know wiped them out and the rebirth happening in sumeria and then to egypt etc so what what's your take on on this kind of new narrative of our history well first of all let me say that i absolutely subscribe to that viewpoint mm -hmm. okay and yeah. And, and I have to say, um, uh, and not in passing, but I, I have to say that um, Robert Schock and his work in Forgotten Civilizations, his, um, his book of about 10 years ago, I guess, um, that was probably really instrumental in leading me to this conversation uh, because that was the very first narrative that I read that put all of these pieces into a coherent thread, if you will, of how, how could there have been an ancient civilization? How could it have been erased almost without a trace? How could we have been placed in a situation where we were essentially <clears throat> starting over again and climbing that hill back towards civilization again for not the first time, but for the second, who knows, maybe even more than that. The fifth or sixth, I think some of the claims are, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. But he was the very first that provided me with a narrative that showed those steps uh, cast against a geological, verifiable geological environment that did not have to invoke gods, magic, the supernatural, aliens, or whatever in order to get from point A to point B where we are now. And so kudos to Robert and his wife, Katie, and 
also to the work of John Anthony West. And really, John is the one who drug Robert over there, of course, as I'm sure everyone knows, and said, I need a real-life geologist to look at this Sphinx and say, what do you think about the notion that it's older? You know, and Shock's response was, you know, he looked at it for 30 seconds and said, of course it's older. The erosion on here is very clear evidence that this all happened during the wetter period of a far, far removed time frame in, mm -hmm. uh, in Egypt and in North Africa than has existed for like the last 5,000 years, let us say. And so, I mean, that's kind of what led me uh, along this way. And so, you know, my piece of this puzzle that we're talking about is a microscopic piece of this much broader conversation. And frankly, I think that uh, I, my work is kind of done on the shoulders of John Anthony West and Robert Schock and Robert Buffall and, and of Man Who Safes Today, whom it's really been my extreme honor to collaborate with and to be a, a co-conspirator, if you will, mm -hmm. with Manu in, in moving the football forward on this story that, hey, there was a prior, a prior cycle of civilization. They, whoever they were, perished at the end of the last ice age, be it either by the agency of a comet or the agency of a massive solar outburst, whichever, Mm -hmm. that abruptly and cataclysmically ended the younger Dryas, where sea levels rose some 350 to 400 feet in on a geological time scale, which was almost an instantaneous mm -hmm. rise of sea levels, thereby obliterating any evidences of a previous cycle of civilization. Not any evidence, because... You sort of see the footprints are evident all around the globe. And that kind of gets me to, to a point of one of the things that I had said to Manu the very first time I met him, oh, five years ago at Contact in the Desert, if you will, I happened to be sitting next to him watching Robert's talk speak. And, you know, I said to him, I said, you know, Manu, um, history is like a crime scene. Once you acknowledge that an event may have occurred, all of a sudden, every footprint, every tire track, every fingerprint takes on a forensic significance that you can actually reconstruct a picture from. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly the scenario we found when we went into the tomb of Unas last year. Yeah. We'd been in there before, man who's been in there many times before, but the story of one single out-of-date, antiquated, disfigured, and deliberately overcarved hieroglyph of the Mehit the lioness with the curved rod coming out of her back. A symbol, like I said, that it had gone all the way back to at least the first dynasty. This symbol was right smack right in the center of the wall, of the north wall of the sarcophagus chamber, in the tomb of Unas. And we're looking at that thing going like, okay, so is that a screw up? Was that a scribal error? Or was it deliberate and made to look like an error? And if so, how come that was? Why would they have put something like this? That, that hieroglyph had been out of use for 150 years, okay? So how come it is in such a prominent location right there in the sarcophagus chamber, right where the spirit of the king is supposed to like come out of his mm -hmm. 
out of his sarcophagus on his journey through and up to the stars and so yeah. forth. What's up with that? And are there other similar references or clues to Mehit that may be elsewhere in the pyramid text? That is when we started to look at this and say, okay, this is a crime scene. Mm -hmm. What other details, what other evidence, what other items are they that help to uh, comprise the story? And so that's really what we did for three weeks. And, and the trail of clues is manifest throughout the pyramid text, starting with the very, very beginning that's in the west gable up there at the top. There's, you start to see the references of the beard and of the unnamed lioness and of the face upon a face and the fact that it is noted as a royal face and the, and the uh, denotation that it happens in Rostow, which is the ancient name for Giza. And that over at the very end of that gable, is the unnamed lioness with the symbol of uh, the scribes right next to it. All of a sudden, all of these clues start to fill in this picture of there is a story of a lioness and that she was defiled and the object of the sacrilege was this braided beard that adorned the royal face at the ancient Rostow or ancient Giza. So we follow this all the way through, and that is in uh, the paper that we wrote, the Bearded Lady um, Protest uh, uh, um, Appropriation and, uh, and Veiled uh, Protest in the uh, Pyramid Text of Giza. Appropriation, as we know, we see everywhere throughout Egypt. That is no, that's no news, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, everywhere you look, you see temples, edifices, statues, sculptures, etc. that... The next king that came along said, this is mine. I'm putting my name on it. And from now on forward, it's going to be associated with me. So, okay. I mean, that's nothing new. So I, I guess you subscribe to the idea that the pyramids were built before the time of Khafre. But what do you think the um, pyramids were built for? You've mentioned quite a few times about tombs, but there's a lot of people who suggest that that's not their true purpose. I would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, it is, uh, well, first of all, let me step back just for one second, Joe, and say what a great job you did on your podcast uh, two weeks ago where you had Gary Osborne and Manu Safes today mm -hmm. on. Thank you. Um, talking about, not only talking about the Rendisham incident and the Penniston Code, yes. that Gary is such a <laughs> Are you, are you a quite familiar with that? magnificent the yeah. advocate of that. Mm -hmm. But also, as Gary has, has indicated, its direct connections to the Great Sphinx of Giza and the importance of all that, particularly as it demonstrates that the, the layout of the entire Giza plateau clearly uh, it was the function of some sort of master plan that was, mm -hmm. that was created first and then actually activated as the pyramids were built. Regardless of what time sequence that they were built in, they obviously subscribe to a master plan and its relation to the great sphinx which of course gary has extrapolated that all over the globe god bless him for doing that and um and the point being that tying the great sphinx to some of these more ancient um civilizations and this more ancient footprint that uh, was established 
in all likelihood before the dynastic Egyptians came along. Okay. Now that being said, yes, I agree that it would appear certainly that the great pyramid uh, in particular, I think a pretty good case could be made for the fact that that was not a tomb and the, technology of course there's much 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 speculation writing mm -hmm. and youtube videos and everything about the amazing technology that was utilized and how could they possibly have done that it must have been aliens or mm -hmm. magic or whatever but it probably wasn't a thousand slaves dragging 75 ton rocks all the way from the aswan quarry 500 kilometers away and raising them up 400 feet up into the air <laughs> perfectly tuned mm -hmm. to each other mm -hmm. uh so i do subscribe to the notion that there was an ancient cycle of civilization that perished at the end of the younger dryas however i am not a fan of uh, and no offense to all of those believers out there i'm not a fan of the ancient aliens theory that it had to have been aliens that helped everybody do that i'm more a fan of the ancient humans theory and that being that I, I do quite agree with Graham Hancock on the point that they didn't have cars and cell phones and television and moon landings, okay? They didn't have rocket engines and forges and blast furnaces and, and all that kind of stuff. I believe that he is absolutely correct. They probably had a different knowledge set a different knowledge base that was that was more predicated on utilizing the natural energies that are inherent in our system between in the planet and the atmosphere in terms of vibration and resonance and frequency you know and again i guess i'm i'm probably i'm probably equally a fan of nikolai tesla who was hard on the trail of all of that stuff before he ended up sort of on the, at least for now, the trash bin of history, um, <laughs> that Tesla was Tesla was very much on the case with that. Oh, and yeah, I mean, we know from modern day physics and quantum physics and so forth that basically all matter is energy, vibration, and resonance. Okay, and that what we perceive as hard matter and whatnot is really just a function of our inadequate and incomplete description of how stuff is put together mm -hmm. okay i would submit to you well you know nikolai tesla was one of the ones that said oh you know there is there's more energy um between the positive of the atmosphere and the negative earth there's more energy in that system than all of the energy that humankind has ever used piled up together. And that if somebody had a different knowledge set and a different worldview description, if you will, that allowed them to understand and to harness those energies that are inherent in the system, I think that there is no end of the wonders that they could do and that we would fail to understand in this day and age because yeah. we are bound by what i would refer to as the newtonian heat model mm -hmm. of how yeah. stuff works right mm -hmm. yeah we, we use things we combust things we burn them or whatever and it produces heat 
which provides energy that allows us to accomplish work. Okay. And you know, that's been, that's been mm -hmm. a good vehicle yeah. for us, but it locks us into a worldview that says, how could they possibly have had the energy to have had the leverage to have drug these things and drug them and up ramps or whatever, or with cranes exactly. or yeah. 10,000 slaves that fit inside like the tunnels and the Serapium, excuse yeah. me. I've seen and have touched the hundred ton granite boxes in the Serapium in Socorro. Okay. And, you know, there's like one foot on either side of these boxes to the tunnels that are hewn through the solid bedrock. And it's like, I'm sorry, you ain't getting a hundred people or 200 or 500 people clustered around this hundred ton box to get it down underground in through this tunnel and set down into its little alcove mm. sorry that's just not happening uh, yeah. with i, I was with in machu picchu last year and um when i was there i uh the, the the every tour guide does the same thing they show you this picture of people pulling um large rocks to you know to to build these structures and I did question it, and I think about half half the tall guys I questioned it with were like, you know, there are other theories, and they were open to it, and others were just very close minded to it. So there is an openness to suggestions that this uh, that this idea of um, pulling rocks up ramps is uh, is maybe not the not the correct one. Um, I think that's growing, or not, the, or not the complete description. Yeah, let us say. Maybe. Uh, I mean, it's it's just like so the pyramids. The time of Kafra, they. They were. Um, they possibly did build it. They probably met and did it. They probably did work on it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they originated it, right? So... Well, it's interesting to note, I, and I think that uh, Graham points it out quite well. And that is the Pyramid of Khufu, the Great Pyramid, if you will, probably represents the zenith of uh, pyramid construction, and that it is the largest by far. It has the most masonry in it and obviously the most number highest number of stones and things like that by far of any other pyramid that was made in the pyramid period of dynastic egypt and that all the pyramids after that were lesser in scope lesser in quality lesser in uh precision and dynamic um use of materials and so forth for instance the pyramid of unas where we were uh, and examining the pyramid text, like mm. I said, last and smallest of the royal pyramids. Okay, well, dig that thing is basically a pile of rubble mm -hmm. that is encased in the fine limestone. I sent you yeah. a photo to that effect yeah. too. Oh, it's and, and so <laughs> striking to see that is yeah. so different from the Great Pyramid, and yet that was however many hundreds of years later. You know, so the notion of a civilization with with skills that are devolving and getting less and less and less as time goes forward rather than evolving that ain't right no it, it doesn't make that sense it's right. also i think um correct me if i'm wrong but it's also shown in just the simple ceramics and pottery and all the um various tools that were used for just cooking and simple things like that you can see a de degradation in the yes. ability to to do this and it, it kind of blows your mind why <laughs> you know the devolving that's right exactly <laughs> and um you know it's not just that i mean you know ben uh 
been on uh, uh, on his podcast has been really articulate about the stone vessels that were found, like the 40,000 busted up stone vessels that were obviously much, much older that were found beneath uh, Dozier's step pyramid mm-hmm. uh, there at Saqqara. And, you know, these vessels are flawlessly, perfectly turned stone vessels out of the hardest materials like diorite and things like mm-hmm. that that are that are so far in excess of what the archaeological record shows as having the uh, as the tool capacity that was evident in the archaeological record at that period of time because remember one of these things when you're talking about gee they did this they did all these things with these various tools and whatnot i am always reminded of the fact that you have to lay the timeline of metallurgy along all of this whole description of how and what was done at different points in history and whatnot because the history of metallurgy if nothing else is a history of different points of civilization's ability to control fire right i mean copper you can melt copper basically with a wood fire that you built through pile up the logs and you can melt copper with that. Okay, that's fine. Okay, you start getting into bronze and you start getting into iron and you start getting into steel and, and all those kinds of things. All of those are a function of our ability to control and direct fire. Again, the Newtonian heat principle, if you will. And so, yes, they didn't have before they had, you know, the, the notion that they did all of those giant precision cuts in granite from Aswan and things like that by building the fire on it and banging on it with the rock and, you know, and tooling all these perfect edges and perfect curves and perfect fits and so forth with copper is, is not only ludicrous, it's a bit of an insult, I think, to our intelligence. There must have been something else that was in use. Not necessarily a tool, maybe a procedure or a way of doing things well, that allowed them to harness the energy that's out there. Exactly. Yeah, I think um, the end. If, correct me if I'm wrong, but the entomology of pyramid comes from fire in the middle or fire mid. So, and fire doesn't necessarily mean what we were talking about just now about fire, but fire is in the energy uh, inherent in everywhere that we were that they were able to harness uh, in a ways that we seem to have lost in a way that we've kind of not not able to harness what is abundant energy all around us at all times. That's a, that's a great point, Joe. And I, and I kind of, in my own thinking, I kind of refer to that as the big fire and the little fire. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And the little fire is the fire of combustion and mm-hmm. oxidizing some material in order to obtain the heat that you use to perform work with. Okay. The big fire is the incredible many, many orders of magnitude greater energy that exists in like the strong attraction and weak attraction of particles and in the atom and, and the electromagnetic forces that are involved and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I mean, the amount of energy and just like, the tiniest substance, if all of that energy is released from at the atomic level, you know, it is, we're talking you know, hundreds of kilotons of energy as opposed to a ton of TMT. Yes. 
And so that's the big fire and the little fire. And we've all, we've been pretty far down the road of the little fire. And we think that that's the only one that really matters. Mm -hmm. Silly us. <laughs> well, maybe there's going to be a, a, a change to that in, in years to come. And uh, we hope so for yeah. sure. <laughs> and, and, and in fact, that's probably what fuels my passion for this notion that there was perhaps an ancient cycle of civilization that, had a different way of knowing and a different way of understanding how the world, consciousness, space, mm. energy are all integrated yeah. that allowed them so, to do things that we find, frankly, impossible. And yet there they are. Yeah. So actually, I'll turn our attention maybe to consciousness and this notion uh, we, we talked about it earlier. Have you, have you um, heard of Donald Hoffman and his... His, uh, he kind of was one of the people that I heard first that talked about the notion that consciousness is the base reality. Everything is conscious and material world is, is comes from that. And um, I'm not familiar with them, but I, I just from your description there, um, again, as a sculptor, forgive mm -hmm. me, but mm -hmm. I resonate with that. For sure. I definitely resonate with it. And it, it's something that it kind of changes the kind of this perspective of the nature of reality itself when you kind of switch from thinking of everything as matter floating in the universe that somehow coalesces and when it gets that um, into a, a certain uh, shape, somehow consciousness comes from, you know, the interactions when really consciousness is fundamental and uh, matter is what's born out of, I guess, aren't consciousness's need to create a world for experience to find out what consciousness is it's kind of a, a quite there's quite a deep a depth to why the matter exists why we exist why why there are things um In, but, indeed yeah. let me let me refer to uh, a a recent film that i loved in fact we bought it and i've seen it several times and that is arrival oh, perhaps yes. you've seen yeah. that movie yeah. okay <laughs> And um, in that movie, Arrival, which, of course, is the story of they bring in this young gal who is a linguist after this shiny silver ship arrives and nobody knows what to make of it. And she basically comes in there and establishes a platform for seeking to um, communicate with them, if you will. Mm. And in that movie, there is a, a really nice conversation about what is called the Warfian hypothesis. And that was Benjamin Worf, who was a linguist and a semanticist and wrote some very seminal works on, um, on how language comprises our worldview and how that determines, if you will, via our collective consciousness, how that determines the reality that we experience. Okay, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. kind of a real real simplistic nutshell of the Worfian hypothesis, okay? And the reason I mention that is because one of the things that is really key to that movie, Arrival, is that the aliens, if you will, they teach humans that time is a continuous thing and not a sequential, you know, mm -hmm. slice, slice, slice. Like a, it's a continual thing that exists in both directions at all times, and it is basically our language and our description of the worldview that has determined the reality that we collectively experience as humans, that time is unidirectional, 
It only flows that way and has a beginning and an end and so forth. And it is that awareness in the movie Arrival that I think ultimately um, would lead humans to the stars. And, and, and not to put too fine a point on it, but I, I get back to that's probably one of the things that drives my passion, Joe, for this whole subject and this whole conversation is the notion that it is our blindness imposed by our worldview that is keeping us planet bound and that is keeping us constrained within Einstein's framework of the limits of the speed of light and so forth and so on. We ain't getting nowhere at the speed of light. Okay. I mm-hmm. mean, we're not sitting around for 5.6 years just to get to Alpha Centauri or Proxima Centauri or whatever. And everybody knows, everybody knows that you got to have a wormhole if you're going to have a star drive. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and I guess what I'm here to say to you is that part of the thing that drives my passion in this ancient civilization is that I believe that they knew things that we need to figure out. And they knew stuff that we need to know. And again, back to the crime scene thing, okay? They're a crime scene, and there's stuff going on there. And once we acknowledge that that happened, we'll figure it out. Yeah, That's the important thing, is getting to the point where we acknowledge that there is something to figure out about that. Yeah, our only limits really is our imagination <laughs> in terms of looking It forward. is our arrogance that <laughs> makes us blind. That's mm-hmm. what I'm here to tell you. And that is so true across so many fields, but especially when it comes to this notion of was there a prior cycle? Because we're all, we're all up in our drawers about how we are a king of the hill, and this is the highest aspirations that Homo sapiens have ever achieved, and that we're the top of the heap. And God bless us for our ownership of the world and everything in it, and all the creatures, great and small, and all the resources are all ours to use as we see fit because we're top of the heap. That's a blindness that we impose on ourselves, and that's. Yeah kind of what keeps us locked into the unproductive spiral that perhaps we find ourselves in. Yeah, it's all, it's all connected, definitely. And Graham Hancock's, uh, one of the famous phrases he seems to have coined is that we're a species in amnesia. Um, and So true. Yeah, it seems true. But do you, do you sometimes feel maybe that the, the way we are in terms of our amnesia was not um, an accident but maybe it was quite a deliberate from certain forces and, and maybe this chimes into the potential for extraterrestrial influence well uh yes i mean it it, it is certainly a, a a possibility that it is intentional um i am a firm believer in the fact that um the word coincidence may I say, mm-hmm. has a hyphen in it. Mm-hmm. And it is actually coincidence. Yeah. And the difference is significant, okay? Mm-hmm. Because a coincidence referred to things that aren't related at all, but just happen to happen at the same time. However, a coincidence is actually indicates that things, of course, are related. If they're present in the system, mm-hmm. they are related, even if the connection may not be obvious to the um, 
uneducated uh, viewer, if mm -hmm. you will. Uh, and I and I believe that to be very much the case. However, that being said, of course, I grew up watching Star Trek, as everyone did. <laughs> and so I note that the principle of non-intervention, I think that I salute that principle, i.e. Prime directive. <laughs> the prime directive, correct. Yeah. Whether they come from the far future or from a far distant star, uh, it seems to me that if a civilization or species is to mature enough to achieve citizenship in, let us say, a galactic society, you kind of have to do that on your own as a self-selecting population. You can't, they can't come and say, here's the phaser, here's the star drive, here's the anti-gravity device, and off you go to the races. I mean, it's kind of like giving the gun, the keys, and the dynamite to the teenagers and say, we're off to Bermuda, you guys party on while we're gone, and we'll see you in three weeks. <laughs> you know, you that ain't right, okay? Yeah, yeah. So to, to your point of is, it, uh, is our amnesia <clears throat> intentional or not, um, the outcome is the same. We are amnesiatic. And it's going to be up to us to pierce that veil of our obscured history. And all of these works, and frankly, that I think that ultimately, I believe, is one of the meaningful contributions to the alternative history <clears throat> field, if you will, is to help bring that conversation into the campfire of the public conversation so that people start... Me. saying mm -hmm. okay well what if what if yeah. such and such i think that's really where um <clears throat> where knowledge insight disclosure and revelation will occur is in that context yeah are you, are you following the kind of i guess uh the path to disclosure you might call it from the 2017 in the new york times article about <clears throat> the nimitz and how things have developed since then with more podcasts, more people talking about it, a le less stigma when referring to the potential. Um, have, have you been following that um, closely over the last few years? Yes, of course. Of course I am. And and I must, I must observe, Joe, that I am the child of a military family. Okay. And so I spent my life growing up all over the world. You know, we moved every two years or whatever. And, uh, and my old man was a, um, was an aviator from the days his his career as an aviator incredibly spanned all the way from wood and canvas biplanes to multi-engine jets and being present on launches to the moon and so forth and so on during his okay. career as an aviator so yeah, i was going to ask so you I'm, about I'm, that, yeah so I'm, <laughs> I'm i'm very hip to that but here's the real point as an aviator in the air force i am very sensitive to the notion of how military pilots were not about to go out blabbing on CNN or MSNBC or whatever that, hey, I saw a UFO last week when I was flying in my F-16. It flew right past me and stopped and then hovered and then made a right turn and then zipped off and disappeared and whatnot. You don't do that as a military pilot because you get grounded and then you ain't flying and then you're flying a desk if you're still in the service. And so to your point about the Nimitz, okay, and all of the activities that surrounded that, the 
pot started to bubble over. It was no longer possible just to keep the constraints on people saying, hey, I saw this, or, whoa, maybe I saw that, or, you know what, I also saw this. All of a sudden, the forensic evidence is starting to mount to where even um, our government is obliged to come forth. Not that they would ever not tell us exactly what's going on, mm -hmm. right? We would not presume ever that that would happen. But in the outside chance that they might be keeping some things for us for from us for our own good, um, I believe that we've seen that, and that is the that is the information block, if you will, that is crumbling. And mm -hmm. I'm I'm so thrilled to see that. I mean, everywhere you go now, the concept of talking about sightings and the presence of these unexplained aerial phenomenon is now a part of everyday conversation on Main Street. And it's no longer just the repository of kooks and weirdos. Mm -hmm. So I salute that all day long. And, you know, I mean, every time you look into a UFO related gathering, like for instance, contact in the desert, the common the common thread is, oh, my God, disclosure is coming. Disclosure is going to happen this year. It's mm -hmm. going to happen in August or it's going to happen in October or whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, and that's been going on for a while. But I believe that that point has gotten some legs and that we are getting closer and closer to where we will have an unambiguous indication of some other intelligence other than ours that doesn't mean that they're going to land on the lawn of the white house okay or that you know anderson cooper is going to get an exclusive interview with the aliens in their in their <laughs> bubble suits and things that that doesn't mean that but for starters i think it is enough for us to derive an unambiguous indication of some other intelligence other than us living here on the surface of the planet. And again, back to the Rendlesham incident and the Peniston Code, okay? <clears throat> Gary has done such a magnificent job of following that painstaking and complicated story and, and nursing that thread mm -hmm. out to see that it actually has connections with our world and with the fine structure um, uh, constant. constant. Yeah, that, I mean, that was, exactly. That <laughs> yeah, yeah. it didn't even exist when that happened. And you know, I think that it is not too far fetched to. I, I like I like his conclusion that it was not a manned uh, or an occupied uh, vehicle that was at the Rendlesham incident. That it was in all likelihood a drone or a probe. These days, of course, we're all about drones and probes, and we use mm -hmm. them all over the place, all the stinking time, right? So no big deal. And frankly, uh, the notion that it could be an extratemporal event rather than extraterrestrial, you know, I think that that's a legit, that's a legit premise, mm -hmm. you know, and good on him for, for chasing that down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating, and I'm, I'm just... Uh eager to see how this all develops over the years and i'm glad to uh glad to see it all, all uh being talked about you know so i was raised on space okay mm -hmm. and aviation and and frankly i was raised on the whole concept of flying saucers and science fiction and the whole thing um 
the question that I have, and in, in, you ask about UFOs and how I feel about that and whatnot, is, first of all, A, I would be the first to agree that we are almost certainly not alone in the cosmos, mm-hmm. okay? And that, B, there is quite likely that, uh, that it's possible that there are travelers from distant star systems or whatever that would come here uh, that would be observed in our atmosphere and so forth. My question, though, is... Did they just start coming like in 1945-47 Roswell? Did they just start coming? I mean, some would say we started seeing those and the Foo Fighters and whatnot really concurrent with the first setting off of, of an atomic and nuclear device. And that's when we first started seeing them. I mean, in a sense, that could be kind of a signal of, well, okay, humankind has achieved the atomic energy threshold, if you will, okay? So did they just start coming then and we're only seeing them now more because um, because they uh, are here and everybody's got a cell phone with a camera? Or did they come long ago, plant their seeds or do whatever they did and now they've come back? Or did they come long ago and have they been here all along? Yeah. And they're undersea locations or they're wherever whatever the, to me that that's kind of the questions that i would seek to thresh out in my own thinking about let us say these unidentified aerial phenomenon mm-hmm. yeah it's um it is fascinating um but i, I my my view they've they have been here all the time but <clears throat> for whatever reason well actually we probably have a good speculation of the reason why it's become more frequent for us to discuss it or see things since possibly Roswell maybe before but that was down to us being able to harness the energy of the atomic weapon and become a threat to them I think when we're all just barbarically sort of killing each other in various Mm -hmm. wars with muskets it's probably okay and let them carry on being humans but when we start harnessing power that could be a threat to them I think it became apparent we they uh, need to get involved and it's 70 years later that we are maybe consciously at a point where we might be able to break through this veil and uh, discover more about reality and ourselves. You know, I love the story of Arthur C. Clarke, his short story called The Sentinel. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. It was a short story, but The Sentinel is the story that the movie 2001 was predicated on with the monolith. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that being that, the cedars, if you will, that seeded the stars with um, uh, on all these planetary systems and whatnot. And they put an object that you had to get to a certain level of development technologically and civilization-wise in order to access this bell, if you will. And that yeah. bell was a monolith that was on the moon, right? This was Arthur C. Clarke's short story, and it was a self-selecting test, if you will, that weeded out the ones that weren't going to make it and the ones that did make it. Because if you found that monolith on the moon, it meant that you'd survived long enough as a species and a civilization to get to the point where you launched a rocket to the moon and actually found the thing. I, I love that story and the notion of of a threshold a bell that you got to ring in order to recognize that you have gotten and and the ones that didn't they didn't they fell by the wayside right 
civilizations the same way. You know, if they if they got to a certain point and rang that certain bell, that it, it they were sort of self selectors as the uh, as the as the successful, if you will, rather than the unsuccessful. Yeah, and then that ties in um, quite nicely with the fine structure constant, which Gary um, puts as a quite to yeah, the point. Exactly, quite the to number the of point. decimal places gives you a kind of an indication of where you are. Yep. But back to your back to your remark, Joe, about uh, you're believing that they've been here all along, which, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly uh, willing to entertain that description. But I would have to ask you in that context, did they or did they not observe the prime directive that we referred to about uh, in Star Trek, i.e. the non-intervention in a species and artificially bumping along their journey along the evolutionary path what say you well i think um when we say they we, we're not talking about one we're talking about many multitude of uh, species and i think whatever's going on out there can be just as chaotic as it is here and the idea that you can control every species to uh, you know um adopt the prime directive and stick to it 100 percent is probably just as difficult to uh, maintain law and order in a, in a city. You know, it's there's going to be someone who's going to break it or try and break it or it lay might the be edges more of a and guideline <laughs> than a law. Yeah. Huh? Is what you're yeah. saying? Uh, yeah, and maybe there are some species who try and gray gray the edges. Look at the blur the edges. What it is that's just to try and find Indeed. ways of tinkering with uh, reality whilst not quite breaking it and. Yeah, it's probably just as complicated um, the politics going on out there that it is uh, here right now. And uh, imagine it's not it's not implausible anyway that um, despite such prime directives that we are, um, I guess, the product of possibly an intervention that wasn't planned. <laughs> I mean, looking back, mm -hmm. uh, there was there was primates on this planet, and suddenly in what of very short space of time. The, you know, art and chemistry and music and all these things seem to have become agriculture and they seem to be part of society in a very short space of time from, from sort of hunter-gatherer society. And the idea that, that was born out of just pure evolution is something that needs to be questioned because I think there's absolutely been, needs to be questioned. The, the idea and, and... of intervention seems quite plausible when you see the, the, the rates that that happened in, in our history. Well, and, and our history is full of um, unexplained or inexplicable bumps along the way of how is it that such and such happened at that point in time? How could that, you know, and, and go black, go Beckley Tepe and Kerhan Tepe and all of the Tepes that they are now finding all throughout yeah. Turkey uh, are indicative of a vastly more organized and integrated uh, society than any of our models of the, you know, farming came first, you know, agriculture came first and was followed by religion and then was followed by civilization and so forth. That's been, that's been our description of the process for a long, long time. And Gobekli Tepe shot that thing full of holes. And, and in fact, it really, it really gave a lot of credence to the notion that, actually religion came first and that was followed by sedentarianism or by agriculture and farming and settling down and so forth and so on and that the the divine experience the uh embracing of a 
consciousness and a something out of body and greater than ourselves, that experience, be it aided or not by um, uh, psychotropic substances, if you will, that experience seems to go all the way back to caveman days mm -hmm. as virtually an uninterrupted tradition. Again, getting back to your earlier point that consciousness arguably precedes the formation of things and matter and so forth. I think, you know, there's probably the most exciting thing about the times that we live in right now, Joe, is that we are increasingly getting to the threshold of finding out how much we don't know. That's really exciting rather yeah. than thinking that we're all full of ourselves and that we know everything like, yeah, and the, the God hubris to say we're just about the there. You know. <laughs> I mean, we all physics. remember the stories in 1895 when Congress basically was all set to shut down the patent office, right? Because everything had been invented and <laughs> everything was already known that we needed to know at the end of the 19th century. And we, clearly recognize how much of a blinder hubris is. Mm -hmm. And I think that awareness at least helps to arm us to try and not be hubris and not to allow that to guide our vision of who we are, where we came from, and where we're going to. Exactly. I think that's, that's the challenge that we need to free ourselves of. Yeah, and that, I think that path of discovery is probably infinite. <laughs> it probably never for ends. sure yeah absolutely yeah. And, and if it, because if it did end what well, where would you go then i think that i think this it's deliberately infinite <laughs> there's, there's always well, something unless, to discover there's always more <laughs> un unless you go through the torrid meteor uh um stream trail again and get smacked back down to uh stone knives I guess, and yeah. it's, it's, again <laughs> which you yeah. know stranger things have happened have they not <laughs> yeah <laughs> Okay, so um, I think uh, it's been a, a wonderful talk. Um, I wouldn't mind uh, quickly actually um, showing your uh, this Free the Linus website that you, you said that's recently gone live. Excellent. Uh, it actually yeah. just went live yesterday. I encourage everyone to take a peek at it. It is freethelioness.com. Yeah. And it is a great uh, spread of some of our work and the and the corpus of work about the Sphinx in terms of the recarving of it and the and the trail of it and the trail of that story through the pyramid text and sort of a snapshot of how, what, and where that piece is and the role that that piece plays in uh, this broader conversation of us discovering and pulling back the veil on our obscured amnesiatic and forgotten history mm -hmm. for sure free the lioness.com remember it's it's our hubris that is keeping her trapped mm -hmm. okay yeah. so mm -hmm. free the lioness.com i encourage your viewers and your listeners to go and check it out and uh you know joe in closing i would like to share this thought with you um it's it's as if sir elton john so hauntingly portrayed in his song candle in the wind mm -hmm. except that marilyn monroe is not the candle princess diana is not the candle the candle 
is civilization and the flame is knowledge. It is so easily extinguished and it is so hard to relight. That's really kind of the image that every time I hear that song, I realize we're the candle and our knowledge is so easily extinguished. I'm reminded of Archimedes who was killed on the sword blade of a Roman centurion in the sack of Syracuse in like 235 BC. And all of the knowledge, all of the wisdom, all of the incredible ingenuity and all of the potential contributions to civilization expired with him on the sword blade of a Roman centurion. And it wouldn't be many of the things that he discovered and the principles that he articulated wouldn't be rediscovered for another 1500 years after that. Mm-hmm. That's how easily the candle is extinguished. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's a very good point and uh, I think it's a very good uh, way to end this conversation. So um, thank you very much. Let's for, keep for that flame time. lit. You guys yeah. keep it lit. Exactly. Talk about it and um, bring it up in conversations and uh, discover more. So yeah, thank you very much, and um, maybe we'll speak again another time. And Joe, yeah. thank you so much for the chance to visit with you about the story of Mahit, the lioness, and her alter ego, the Great Sphinx of Giza. Thank you all, and uh, we'll see you again soon.